Welcome to today's local environment, the Compliance Podcast, brought to you by Elgene, the local government environmental assistance network. Elgene is a first stop shop providing local governments with user friendly information on compliance with federal environmental regulations, funding strategies, and tools for advancing healthy and sustainable communities for all. Brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute under a cooperative agreement with the United States Environmental Protection Agency. ELI makes law work for people, places, and the planet. Welcome to today's podcast, Meeting Stormwater Compliance Objectives with Green Infrastructure. This is an episode of today's Local Environment, the Compliance Podcast. This series of podcasts is produced by the Local Government Environmental Assistance Network, or LGN, as we call it, under a cooperative agreement between the Environmental Law Institute, or ELI, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. My name is Linda Bregan, and I'm a senior attorney with ELI and the director of ELI's Center for State, Tribal, and Local Environmental Programs. And I'm Shella Chowdhury, a research associate here at ELI and part of the team that manages Elgin. Shella, I'm really looking forward to our discussion today about green infrastructure and specifically how localities can use it as an integral part of their Clean Water Act compliance efforts. As many of our listeners know, runoff from stormwater continues to be a serious problem in many parts of the country, and localities are really on the front lines of dealing with the problem. To give you a sense of the challenge, the Natural Resources Defense Council estimates that the average city block generates more than five times, five times as much runoff as a forested area of equal size. This makes sense because natural landscapes soak up rain and snow melt, but streets and parking lots, for example, are impervious and basically repel stormwater. As a result, about 10 trillion gallons of water from cities enter U.S. waterways untreated each year. 10 trillion? That is a lot of water. And it causes numerous problems for localities, doesn't it? That's right, Shella. The runoff not only pollutes waterways with trash, oil, pesticides, bacteria, and other pollutants, but flooding damages local property and infrastructure, as well as contributes to erosion. And unfortunately, in some cases, it isn't just stormwater running through storm drains that ends up in surface water. In hundreds of cities that have so-called combined sewer systems, raw sewage can also be discharged into nearby surface waters. Heavy rainfall exceeds the capacity of the system. Wow, that does sound like a serious problem. So what is green infrastructure and how does it factor into solving the problem? Addressing these problems is a significant challenge for localities. When Clean Water Act programs were developed decades ago, the focus was on how to manage pollution through what I would call gray infrastructure, pipes, tunnels, and gutters, for example. But over the decades, we've increasingly realized the incredible value of cost-effective nature-based solutions, what we call green infrastructure. Green infrastructure includes a wide range of design measures that rely on plants, soil, and natural systems to manage stormwater, including rain gardens, urban tree canopies, green streets, and green roofs. These green infrastructure tools are important because localities are responsible for complying with certain federal requirements under the Clean Water Act's wet weather programs. And we'll learn more about these compliance obligations from EPA in just a few minutes. But addressing stormwater isn't easy. It requires both financial and technical resources that many cities just don't have. Today's episode is going to explore how local governments can use green infrastructure to meet their water quality obligations 
regulations under the Clean Water Act and, and why that's a smart approach. Because as we're going to learn, there are a lot of attendant benefits to implementing green infrastructure projects. So, Shala, can I hand it over to you now to introduce our wonderful guests? Of course, Linda. Today we have three terrific guests. Our first guest, Jacob Lunn, is from EPA headquarters. Jacob holds a bachelor's and a master's of science in civil engineering from Case Western Reserve University and works in EPA's water enforcement division. Also with us today, and we'll be talking with them in the second part of this podcast, are Dennis Sayre, an environmental engineer and wastewater treatment plant, combined sewer and sanitary sewer collection system inspector at EPA, and David Johnson, the chief engineer for the Metropolitan Sewer District of Louisville and Jefferson County. And they'll be sharing their on the ground experience with us later. Thanks, Shella, and thanks to our guests for talking with us today. Jacob, let's start with the EPA perspective on this. Very happy to be here to discuss green infrastructure with you all today. Jacob, can, can you set the stage? Can you tell us briefly about the compliance obligations imposed on local governments under the Clean Water Act that relate to green infrastructure? And, and how widespread are compliance problems and what happens when localities fail to meet regulatory requirements? Under the Clean Water Act's National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, NPDES, program, EPA regulates discharges of pollutants from municipal wastewater treatment plants, sewer collection systems, and stormwater discharges from municipalities. As you noted, uncontrolled stormwater discharges can pose significant threats to public health and the environment. The Clean Water Act requires that a municipal separate sewer system, or MS4, have measures in place to prevent pollution from being discharged with stormwater into nearby waterways. In 2019, EPA wrapped up a multi-decade national compliance initiative focused on keeping raw sewage out of the nation's waters and returned work in this area to the Core Enforcement and Compliance Assurance Program. Over this time period, EPA and the states have addressed the non-compliance at 97% of the largest combined sewer systems, 92% of the largest separate sewer systems, and 79% of the largest MS4s. Though great strides have been made during the National Compliance Initiative, significant ongoing effort is needed to protect progress toward bringing large systems into compliance. This is done by continued monitoring of compliance with long-term consent decrees and orders, renegotiation of consent decrees in response to new treatment techniques, integrated plans, and other modification requests and addressing the universe of a mostly smaller systems not covered by the SNS NCI. Green infrastructure measures can be built into consent decrees in terms of actions to be carried out and levels of control to be achieved during green infrastructure as provisions that would be part of the injunctive relief. For instance, a recent 2021 consent decree with Peoria, Illinois will take advantage of the high percent of a high proportion of green infrastructure to significantly reduce CSO discharges into the Illinois River and Peoria Lake. Thank you for that, Jacob. I'm actually from Illinois, so great to hear that. <laughs> really appreciate the background information. So could you tell us a little bit about the history? When did EPA start including green infrastructure and in enforcement orders? In April 2007, the U.S. EPA Administrator at the time, Stephen Johnson, entered a statement of intent with the national state associations and environmental organizations that officially supported green infrastructure as a viable method for meeting Clean Water Act requirements. That gave the green light for EPA staff to encourage states and municipalities to re recognize green infrastructure as a viable option to control combined sewer overflows, improve water quality from stormwater, 
and reduce the volume of water moving into the country's sewer systems. The early consent decrees encouraged municipalities to utilize green infrastructure as an alternative to gray infrastructure, such as in Hamilton County, Ohio, capture combined sewer overflow discharges, such as in Cleveland, Ohio, and develop demonstration pilots with extensive monitoring, such as in Louisville, Kentucky, to use data to demonstrate green infrastructure's ability to improve water quality when properly designed and sized. Other early examples include building wetlands as a way to treat stormwater before the stormwater eventually flows into a riverway, such as in Dallas, Texas. Interesting. So can you tell us a bit more about the benefits of green infrastructure for a community? Jacob, why should municipalities pursue this approach, whether as a part of consent decree or to avoid non-compliance to begin with? Green infrastructure is designed to mimic nature and capture rainwater where it falls. It provides the multiple following benefits. It reduces localized flooding, beautifies the local environment, reduces urban heat island effect, encourages more neighborhood socialization, improves economic health by increasing property values and providing job opportunities for small businesses, as well as decreasing the economic and community impacts of flooding while delivering environmental, social, and economic benefits. Thanks for listing those for us, Jacob. Could you tell us a bit more about the types of projects municipalities are implementing? There are many examples across the country where municipalities are implementing green infrastructure. At the urban scale, green alleys, green streets, urban tree canopies, and bioretention practices have been added to parking lots, local roads, or are replacing vacant lots and alleys. This allows municipalities to better control urban flooding because these green infrastructure practices soak up the rain where it falls and allow water to naturally filter into the water table. We've been making a concerted effort to make sure people take precautions to protect groundwater when stormwater infiltrates into the aquifers. Cities and counties are providing incentives to residents to install green rain gardens, rain barrels, and disconnect downspouts from the sewer line to reduce the volume of water directly entering into the sewer system, reducing capacity-related overflows, such as basement backups. Utilities are realizing the benefit, too, by adding green infrastructure as a key solution to reduce the size or scale of expensive gray infrastructure investments, like underground tunnels or massive pipes, that don't give ratepayers all the community-scale benefits that green infrastructure can provide. That's really interesting, Jacob. Could, could we turn back now to the use of green infrastructure to achieve clean water compliance objectives? How many consent decrees include green infrastructure and how is green infrastructure incorporated into these settlements, Jacob? Since 2007, there have been around 36 federal judicial CSO enforcement cases. 20 of these include green infrastructure as part of the consent decree to meet Clean Water Act requirements. Over the years, the way in which green infrastructure is included has evolved and varies across the country. The consent decrees range from requiring a feasibility study, submitting a new green infrastructure plan that is either standalone or part of the long-term control plan or LTCP, or enforcing an existing LTCP that already has green infrastructure identified. Consent decrees may require implementation of specific GI projects identified by the municipality to meet defined performance criteria, such as frequency or volume of CSO reduction, or may require implementation of pilot projects 
or demonstration projects in addition to monitoring performance. Consent decrees can also facilitate more equitable outcomes by requiring green infrastructure investment to be prioritized in low-income, high-minority neighborhoods. In particular, the secondary advantages of green infrastructure, such as green spaces, can be beneficial to economically distressed, nature-deprived urban areas. Wow, it really is fascinating to learn about consent decrees. That said, I think we can shift now and to discuss municipalities that are not parties to consent decrees with green infrastructure requirements. Jacob, how can they use green infrastructure to achieve compliance and other objectives? It's true that including green infrastructure requirements in a consent decree can facilitate actionable steps to implementing green infrastructure, but communities around the country are opting to put in green infrastructure as a cost-effective and viable solution to mitigate both water volume and water quality concerns at the community and watershed levels because of the variety of benefits they can gain. Local governments can use green infrastructure as part of their compliance approach to urban stormwater management, the management of runoff from streets, sidewalks, and other impervious services that is managed under state or federal stormwater permits. We don't want to lose the perspective that local or state monetary incentives, grants and loans, or permit requirements are also generating green infrastructure on the ground. Some municipalities opted to include green infrastructure in their plans to reduce and eliminate CSOs, even if they weren't required to under the consent decree. Well, it sounds like there's a lot happening already with green infrastructure. Can you tell us about EPA's approach to green infrastructure moving forward, Jacob? EPA supports and promotes the use of green infrastructure as a sustainable way to adapt to climate change, improve water quality, and create vibrant cities communities can enjoy. In fact, there was legislation passed in 2019 called the Water Infrastructure Improvement Act, or WIA. It was signed into law as an amendment to the Clean Water Act. This legislation requires EPA and EPA regions to promote the use of green infrastructure. One way we are doing this is by leading a newly formed Green Infrastructure Federal Collaborative. On November 2nd, we kicked off a webcast series jointly with other federal agencies to help navigate federal funding for green infrastructure. Seven agencies presented on the 28 programs they offered to fund or provide technical assistance for green infrastructure and nature-based solutions. This, this recording is now live for anyone to view. You can Google Green Infrastructure Federal Collaborative to find the webpage, or the webpage can be found in the show notes. In 2022, we'll host a few more webinars on how to equitably adapt to climate change using green infrastructure. We also plan to release a compendium that includes over 20 stormwater permitting examples that include green infrastructure terms and conditions. So in addition to information, information sharing and technical assistance, you will continue to see the integration of green infrastructure into the agency's permitting and enforcement efforts. Jacob, thank you again for being here today and sharing all this incredible information. Before we go, are there any resources you'd like to share with our listeners? No problem, Linda. Links for these resources can be found in the show notes. First, EPA's main webpage, the General GI Resources, has resources for building your own green infrastructure, a place to learn about more GI basics, regulations, and more, as well as a list of partners who can, be, who can provide technical or financial assistance. Second, the EPA's Municipal Ombudsman, who serves as a resource for communities seeking to comply with the Clean Water Act, has a site that provides resources such as federal assistance opportunities, 
technical assistance, and information on integrated planning. Third is EPA's permitting and enforcement series with case studies and example language. And finally, EPA's green infrastructure modeling toolkit, which provides a variety of modeling tools, including the stormwater management model, the national stormwater calculator, or the green infrastructure wizard. Thank you, Jacob. As you noted, we'll be sure to include those resources in our show notes. Next, we'll hear about experiences on the ground at EPA Region 4, the Southeast United States, and how one municipal stormwater system in particular is implementing green infrastructure. But before we bring in David and Dennis, we're going to take a quick break. Thank you for listening to the show. Before we return to today's local environment, the Compliance Podcast, a reminder that you can find a variety of user-friendly tips, funding resources, and other tools for ensuring your community complies with federal environmental regulations by visiting lgene.net. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. We're here in the studio with David Johnson from the Louisville Metropolitan Sewer District and David Sayre, an environmental engineer at EPA Region 4. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Linda and Shayla. I'm looking forward to uh, sharing our story with you and the audience today. I also want to thank Dennis for inviting us to the podcast. Well, thanks, David, and thank you, Linda and Shella. Good to be here. I've been with Metropolitan Sewer District's consent degree efforts since 2012. Thanks so much for joining us. So to start us off, David, could you tell us a little bit about the Louisville Metropolitan Sewer District and your role? Absolutely. I'm the chief engineer here at Louisville MSD. Um, I'm working on year 24 with the district, and as the chief engineer, I oversee the delivery of MSD's capital program. I provide oversight of our MS4 and floodplain management programs, as well as ensure that MSD and local developers meet or exceed compliance measures of local, state, and federal regulations. So MSD is a quasi-government agency created by the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and it's funded through user rates. So we receive no tax revenue, so that's often misunderstood. Uh, MSD provides wastewater, stormwater, and flood protection services for Louisville, Kentucky. So we're kind of a three agency in one. Uh, MSD was created by ordinance in July of 1946. And our new board at the time approved acceptance of the sewer system on November 22nd in 1946. And then 40 years later in 1986, MSD took on drainage and flood protection services from the city. This was done through a strategic growth plan that included establishment of a countywide drainage program. Today, MSD serves an area that includes over 3,400 miles of sewers, five water quality treatment plants, over 283,000 service connections, 99 combined sewer overflows, 16 flood pump stations, 29 miles of levee, and over 1,000 miles of storm sewer mains, and over 72,000 catch basins. So we're much more than just a wastewater utility. Wow, well, David, thanks for that background. And um, I just want to say for listeners who have not been to Louisville, you should go. Uh, I have really enjoyed my visits there to the Louisville Slugger Museum and the Science Museum. It's just a great, great town. So, David, can you start by telling us about the stormwater and wastewater problems your district was facing before you turned to green infrastructure and other solutions, including the history of how these problems developed, as I know there are a lot of localities facing similar challenges? Well, I'll start off by quoting an EPA official. Now, this happened many years ago, but they said Louisville is notorious on the water quality scene being recognized for disaster rather than innovation. So obviously, you never want to be quoted in that fashion. Uh, But that was a long time ago, and I could spend hours talking about this subject, 
but I will focus on all the challenges that are related to wastewater. So like many old river towns, MSD has a separated wastewater and stormwater system further away from the river. But as you get closer to the river, the system becomes combined, meaning that stormwater and wastewater go into the same pipe system. Let's look at the separated system first. Since the 1980s, MSD has led an expansion of our wastewater system. During this time, we expanded our sewer system by more than 1,000 miles of pipe, eliminated over 200 package treatment plants, 44,000 septic systems were eliminated, and hundreds of pump stations. Unfortunately, many of these systems were privately owned and operated, and they were at or over capacity and simply just were not maintained, and many were run to failure. So many of the pump stations had constructed overflows, matter of fact. This effort eliminated hundreds of sanitary sewer overflows, and prior to the consent decree, which I will discuss in a few minutes, we had one overflow that was discharging up to 8,000 gallons a minute. The combined sewer system was built from pre-Civil War up to the 1950s. It was sized for the development of the day, and as, more, and as more runoff was added to the system, our combined sewer overflows increased. It was in the making for 150 years. Much of the combined system was constructed in stream beds. So if you travel through the inner city or downtown Louisville today, you will not find any open channels. They're all piped in. And during heavy rain events, we have low spots, the old floodplains associated with those long forgotten streams that still flood today. Often at MSD, we refer to that, what I have mentioned as sins of the past, and we're working every day to mitigate those sins. Wow, sins of the past, huh? So I understand all those problems ultimately led to an EPA enforcement action that resulted in a consent decree around 2005. Is that right, Dennis? Well, you know, the, the why is pretty simple, actually. I mean, billions of gallons of raw sewage being dumped into waters of the U.S. annually, both from combined sewers and from sanitary sewers. The controlling of combined sewer overflows is a long story that started in the early 70s, the passage of the Clean Water Act, when uh, combined sewer overflows became subject to technology and water quality-based requirements. They are not, however, subject to secondary treatment standards that apply to uh, wastewater treatment plants associated with sanitary sewer systems. Uh, it's a bit different. So expectations were largely misunderstood. In, in 1989, EPA published a, natural, a national CSO control strategy to clarify requirements for CSOs. After a few years of workgroup meetings and stakeholder dialogue, EPA issued the final CSO control policy on April 19, 1994. At that time, many uh, of the stakeholders and members of Congress and the EPA advocated that it be codified into the Clean Water Act to ensure its implementation. Now, fast forward to 2000, DPA issued the Compliance and Enforcement Strategy for Combined Sewer Overflows and Sanitary Sewer Overflows. The 2000 strategy directed the regions to submit an enforcement response plan, which included inspections to determine whether CSO municipalities were implementing the nine minimum controls and either developing or implementing the CSO long-term control plan. In 2001, Congress passed the Consolidated Appropriations Act for fiscal year 2001, which included codifying the 1994 CSO control policy into the Clean Water Act, so effectively it became law. All these actions resulted in negotiating consent decrees with regional CSO communities, like Louisville, started in the early 2000s. The initial consent decree required Louisville to implement what's referred to as the nine minimum controls or NMCs 
which are CSO controls that can be implemented in a short period of time, such as controlling solids and floatables going out of the CSO outfalls. Long-term fixes included the development and implementation of the CSO long-term control plan and the elimination of sanitary sewer overflows. Now, MSD, MSD's response was to develop the 2009 Integrated Overflow Abatement Plan and subsequent updates to that plan. Um, as far as the total cost associated with the CSO controls and SSO elimination, uh, you know, the EPA relies on the municipalities to study and determine the best course of action while encouraging integrated solutions such as green infrastructure and more recently climate change resiliency. Oh, so the initial enforcement settlement required the development of a plan. And then how did um, the Louisville MSD end up including green infrastructure as part of that plan, David? Well, Linda, in 2007, the EPA released a memo that outlined the use of green infrastructure to meet clean water requirements. Uh, this really opened a door for a discussion between MSD and EPA. Uh, we knew a solution to reducing CSOs was preventing stormwater from entering the system, and green infrastructure could do that. So gray solutions such as storage basins, tunnels, and oversized pipes could also reduce the CSOs, but we would still have to deal with the wastewater mixture through the conveyance system and ultimately at the treatment plants, meaning that we would still have to convey it and treat it. So actually our stakeholders wanted an all green solution for the consent decree, but we knew we could not meet the requirements of the consent decree without some gray. At that time, green infrastructure was still new for regulatory purposes, and there's still a lot of questions, not only from MSD, but also the EPA. We were fortunate to have a green infrastructure workshop in Louisville presented by the EPA, and this workshop educated MSD and the community on what we were trying to do. We then developed a spreadsheet model and actually, John Lyons, who's a consultant that works for Strand, did most of the work of the financial viability of green infrastructure solutions. So how much stormwater could we remove from the system with each type of green infrastructure best management practice? We call these green credits. John also helped us develop the initial green infrastructure values and effectiveness, which allowed us to compare the cost of green versus gray. In the end, the EPA, the EPA allowed us to resize our gray infrastructure with the use of green infrastructure based on modeling and monitoring of flows from the green infrastructure. I have to give a lot of credit to Jenny Malloy from the EPA side. She was instrumental in making this happen. Thanks, David. It's really interesting to hear about the steps from, from your perspective um, of how this came about. I'm sure that's going to be really helpful for listeners. Dennis, I'm, I'm wondering if you can now tell us a little bit about EPA's perspective on the development of their plan and the use of green infrastructure. Yeah, sure. You know, you, you have to realize that EPA initially started negotiating the consent decree with MSD in 2004 and then entered into the agreement in 2005. Consent decrees drafted in the early to mid-2000s were based on EPA's CSO Guidance for Long-Term Control Plans document, which is dated August 1995, which is some time ago. Which really, there was no mention of GI in that document. So, for EPA, uh, the usage of GI has, has been an evolutionary process. To MSD's credit, they recognize the benefit of GI and included GI projects in the 2009 Integrated Overflow Abatement Plan, or IOAP, as we like to call it, which included green demonstration projects and green infrastructure programs. 
Thanks, Dennis. Before we continue, I just want to check in uh, with you, Dennis, on a big picture question that we mentioned earlier in the podcast, but it's it's really important, so I want to return to it. We are currently talking about using green infrastructure as part of an enforcement settlement, but localities can use green infrastructure to achieve or maintain compliance with wastewater and stormwater permits even in the absence of enforcement actions, correct? Oh, well, that's correct. You know, one of the most utilized gray infrastructure controls for uh, controlled sewer system is building store structures above and below ground tanks and tunnels. Um, every gallon that has to go into storage escalates the cost of the structure. So green infrastructure is a cost efficient means to reduce the volumes going to storage. Thanks, Dennis. So, you know, if you're listening today, green infrastructure isn't just a way to settle enforcement actions. What you're learning about today, you know, can be used to avoid enforcement actions. Yeah, that's a great clarification to make. And so thank you for doing that. David, I'm interested in what kinds of green infrastructure projects you've implemented. So could you tell us a little bit more about financial incentive programs associated with those? Oh, absolutely. I, I could spend hours talking about this part, but I'll, I'll be brief today. Uh, so it really all starts with the consent decree. MSD's consent decree was developed at a time when there was some early green infrastructure use, but it wasn't a standard of practice for overall reduction um, or water quality. We're able to incorporate green infrastructure demonstration projects into our long-term control plan as part of our consent decree. Prior to developing these demonstration projects, we're able to reach out to other municipalities to understand the lessons learned from their projects. MSD either installed or incentivized green infrastructure in all parts of the county. So we currently have 26 districts that make up our county and we try to put a green infrastructure demonstration project in each of those districts. Those projects included pavers, rain gardens, infiltration basins, pervious pavements, tree plantings, tree wells, green roofs, and green alleys. We installed rain gardens at our main office. We installed pavers, rain gardens, and green roofs at local, state, and federal buildings. The real key to the development of our green infrastructure program were the demonstration projects across the community. We removed pavement and installed rain gardens and bioswells with newly created medians. At most of these sites, we installed information signs and we led tours of these projects and we still do that today. This introduced our community to green infrastructure and really kickstarted the use of green infrastructure by MSD and private landowners. MSD continues to monitor the demonstration projects, those green alleys, parking lots, rain gardens, green roofs and trees, and we have developed guidelines for reporting, operating and maintaining the green infrastructure. Our consent decree also allowed for an incentive program for green infrastructure and urban reforestation. This incentive program is a public-private partnership to install green throughout the city, but mainly in the combined sewer system. With the incentive program, Louisville MSD will incentivize a developer or landowner for removing stormwater from the sewer system. The incentive is based on what it would cost MSD to store, which is usually gray infrastructure, and treat the volume of water removed from the system. MSD has provided incentives for more than 100 projects in the combined sewer area thus far with a benefit of excess of $40 million based on those projects' individual impacts on overflow reduction targets. These green infrastructure center projects were funded through a capital program. In 2013, MSD implemented a water quality treatment standard, which required developments disturbing more than one acre to implement green infrastructure projects to treat the 80th percentile rain event. Prior to approval, MSD requires the new developments to record a long-term maintenance agreement. This takes the burden of maintenance off of MSD, which is one of the largest challenges with green infrastructure. 
Wow. I'll have to make my way out to Louisville to take one of those tours. Uh, that really just sounds like a lot of great work. We'd so, love to have you. <laughs> I'll be looking forward to it. Dennis, uh, could you talk a little bit about what kinds of projects generally you're seeing out in Region 4? Uh, anything innovative in addition to what David and the district are doing? Well, sure. I mean, I don't know if this is anything that MSD is probably doing these things as well, but, you know, we're seeing municipalities team up with state departments of transportation, like, uh, you know, the Kentucky, the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet, um, for the purposes of planning large roadside GI projects to reduce stormwater runoff from highway services that um, that impact the combined sewers. We also see a wide use of detention basins that are designed using natural topography. Uh, which are used uh, for the detention of stormwater with with subsequent delayed release into the CSS or the combined sewer system that reduces the CSO volumes with the combined benefit of mitigating surface flooding. That sounds like a really innovative use of the natural topography and using what you got, right? Sure. David and Dennis, we hear from local governments all the time at Elgin that they're really interested in trying to implement these kinds of projects. But funding and financing are a huge issue, especially for smaller towns and cities. Do you have any advice from your experience? Well, it's not just a challenge for smaller towns and cities. It's a big, it's a challenge for larger ones as well. And uh, that's the exact reason we developed the, the incentive program. It was a call sharing mechanism with private landowners as there was not enough public land available for all the desired green infrastructure projects. We also knew they could build green infrastructure more cost effectively than MSD. In Kentucky, we're also starting to use 319 grants that can be used to supplement green infrastructure projects on a watershed basis. We also greatly benefited from a board that believes in innovative ideas. The board approves our capital spending budget each fiscal year. And, you know, there's challenges both for big and small communities. And we have to realize, though, that the small communities are not microcosm of the larger communities like Louisville or, or like Atlanta, where I'm at. They don't have these smaller communities, they don't really have the financial wherewithal typically to juggle large debt or hire endless consultants. Not that Louisville's hiring endless consultants, but you, you get the picture. Now, I recommend that small local governments evaluate the cost benefits of GI and, and discuss funding options available to small local governments with their state grant offices. Also check outside of what's offered from EPA and state funded programs such as the USDA's water and environmental grant and and in a loan funding program for communities with populations of less than 10,000 and the USDA's Rural Development Water and Environmental Programs. Uh, you can also find many funding options for small local governments on EPA's website. Use any, any search engine you like and just type in EPA funding sources for small and rural wastewater systems and you'll find many sources that may fit lo small local government needs. Yeah, thank you so much both for emphasizing just those differences. Certainly, small communities are not microcosms of big one, and we see that a lot in our work with Elgin and when we talk to these folks. Uh, I should also mention, we did a podcast a little bit earlier called The 411 on Financing, looking at strategies for small water and wastewater systems. So anyone interested in that can jump over to elgin.net slash podcast to hear that and get a little bit of advice uh, specifically tailored to financing small water and wastewater systems. Thanks, Shell. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so, David, I'm curious about the results you've had. What kind of water quality improvements have you seen from the green infrastructure projects in particular? Yeah, absolutely. As it pertains to water quality, our green infrastructure program, and this is capital and incentivized projects, 
have removed approximately 450 million gallons of stormwater from the combined sewer system during an average annual basis. So that's 450 million gallons of stormwater that we don't have to convey or treat our treatment plant. This includes approximately 75 million gallons of annual overflow volume reduction to waterway. So there's 75 million gallons that doesn't overflow into our creeks and streams anymore. Much of this is associated with the removal of approximately 100 acres of impervious area from our system. Finally, I would like to note that we require pretreatment of runoff prior to entering a green best practices. This pretreatment removes pollutants such as litter and oil, which would normally enter our green infrastructure system. It cuts down on maintenance. Wow, those are impressive results. Uh, did you end up realizing other kinds of benefits beyond improved water quality? For example, could you say a little more about how green infrastructure is helping to enhance resilience to climate change impacts? Oh yes, uh, without a doubt, the positive impacts of green infrastructure go well beyond water quality. Uh, we are fortunate to have key partners in our community that wanted to use green infrastructure in their new developments and mitigate existing facilities. For instance, the University of Louisville has a plan to send every drop of runoff from their main campus to the green infrastructure. Now, keep in mind, their entire campus is in the combined sewer system. Another one that you should be that you should know is Churchill Downs, the home of the Kentucky Derby. Uh, they are also located in the combined sewer system, and they've installed infiltration basins that now infiltrate water from over 60 acres of their parking area. So if you come to Churchill Downs in the future, pay attention because there are some signs out there that will tell you what's going on beneath you. Of interest, since their installation in 2018, our flow monitors have recorded no runoff entering our combined sewer system from their 60 plus acre parking area. So that is quite impressive. The volume reduction to our system has made substantial impacts to water quantity and a reduction of gray solution costs, uh, thus reducing costs to our ratepayers. With an increase in frequency of larger rain events, taking water out of the system reduces flooding to a system that is over 200 years old in some areas. And being able to talk about these projects makes green infrastructure seem like the cool thing to do now. We also have encouraged more green, less parking, and the use of green roofs, all of which will help reduce the heat island effect in Louisville. Thanks, David, for uh, walking us through this. And as we know, heat islands, flooding, and other climate change effects disproportionately impact low-income communities and communities of color. And environmental justice is finally increasingly at the forefront of addressing environmental challenges, but not just avoiding disproportionate impacts of pollution, but making sure that beneficial programs are equitably distributed. Do you have any tips for our listeners on ensuring that these types of green infrastructure projects and their benefits are equitably distributed across communities? Well, Linda, this was one of the first things we discussed with the demonstration projects. We wanted to make sure we installed them all across our community. And as I noted earlier, we put them in every council district in our city so that everybody could see them be educated about them. We worked with local neighborhood and community groups on location design criteria. And one of our key partners is the Jefferson County Public School Systems. They work with us to go around to schools and build rain gardens with, with the help of students. After construction, the students maintain them. And we all know that schools are in every part of the community which leads itself to equitable distribution. Additionally, most of our combined sewer system is located in the older, older areas of our community. And these areas typically have lower than average income levels and are historically higher minority populations. These areas contain much of the heavy industry in the community. We have focused significant green infrastructure resources in these areas. Yeah, you know, you should visit your, your utilities website and find out what's going on in your community. I mean, if your utility does not 
post us information, go to the utilities board meetings, go to the city council meetings, you know, be vocal. If you can't do that, read the minutes of the meeting. And uh, typically, they you not typically. Sometimes they're online. Sometimes you have to go get them. But you know, the point is, uh, stay connected, be involved. Definitely, and we're so happy to hear that. You know, a lot of work is going into making sure that environmental justice communities are being looked after in these decision making processes. And so, you know, in that same vein, we'd like to maybe pivot a little bit to talk about challenges. So. David, are there any challenges the district face that you think are important for our listeners to note? Oh, of course. Um, introducing a new concept of stormwater management will always pose challenges. Uh, the first challenge was convincing ourselves that this was really a solution to stormwater issues. Uh, we, you know, as an engineer, we like gray solutions typically, so it really took some time for us to uh, grasp onto green infrastructure. So we quickly found out through research, reaching out to other communities and our demonstration projects that it could work. Uh, for instance, we installed a rain garden here at our main office, which is in downtown Louisville, in 2008. In August of the next year, 2009, we, we received nearly eight inches of rain in 45 minutes. Once again, eight inches of rain in 45 minutes. The rain garden did not overtop. We took it all in. It was like seeing Santa Claus. We started to believe. Uh, funding is a general challenge for all things in the infrastructure world, and maintenance is also a very big challenge. Green infrastructure requires routine maintenance. That's really a key to green infrastructure. If it, it is not a concrete pipe that can go decades with little to no maintenance, if you do not maintain it, it will fail, and usually the fix is re total replacement. Wow. So would you say these are pretty common challenges across the board, Dennis? What other considerations should local governments keep in mind? Well, you know, too often buried assets are out of sight, out of mind, and until the public is impacted. I mean, if you ever had a sanitary sewer overall in your front yard, you know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, keeping the public and the local politicians educated by communicating early and often can help ease tensions. Sewer system pipes and pumps are very costly, which likely necessitates rate increases over multiple years. You know, I think we all know what how popular rate increases are, right? <laughs> Definitely. And I really appreciate you bringing up the point of communication. So speaking of that, do you have any tips about working with communities, David? I assume that it's a pretty critical component of your effort. Yeah, and I'll admit that we're not experts on this just yet, but I can share some of our efforts. And really, um, as Dennis noted, communication and education are really the key ingredients. At times, you feel like a used car salesman when you're describing that this is a great way to mitigate stormwater impacts to your system. We were upfront and explained that green infrastructure is a part of the solution. Honestly, most of the people we worked with have had a positive attitude, which greatly helped. And since we did those initial green infrastructure demonstration projects first, it really allowed us to lead by example. And yes, we did incentivize several community projects as well. Uh, thanks, David. I know many of our listeners will find all of this extremely helpful. Uh, what are some of your next steps for the Louisville District? Well, that's a good question because uh, about three years ago, we developed a critical repair and reinvestment plan, a facility plan basically, that outlined over $4 billion worth of projects to, to be completed in the next 20 years. So once again, $4 billion. Uh, those projects included drainage, wastewater, flood protection, and consent decree projects. We believe that green infrastructure can play a role in managing all these areas by removing stormwater from the system. We are updating our design manual standards and will continue to do so frequently. So 
one piece of advice to folks out there is try to update these every three to five years and not every 10 to 20 years. We still incentivize projects on a case-by-case basis, and we're looking at new ways to grow the program, including a depaved Louisville initiative where we will pay large impervious area owners to remove parking lots and replace them with grass and trees. And then we would put that grass and trees into like an easement so that it could never be uh, developed in the future without our permission. We hope to work with Metro Public Works on the installation of tree wells on every downtown street to reduce flows to combined sewer. And then finally, we want to stay connected to the partners we've used in the past, such as the University of Louisville, Churchill Downs, Jefferson County Public Schools, and anyone else out there that's willing to work with us in cost sharing. Wow, that is a lot of really fantastic programs. David, can you tell us how listeners can learn more about the district and the green infrastructure projects you have underway? I will, and I know that these will be included in the show notes, but for general information, uh, please visit our website at louisvillemsd.org. And for specific information on our green infrastructure program and projects, you can send an email to our MS4 staff at msdms 4 at louisvillemsd.org. And once again, those will be in the show notes for everyone. Thanks so much, David. And yes, definitely we'll be putting those in the show notes. Dennis, any resources EPA makes available that you'd really like to highlight for our listeners? Sure. Uh, the EPA has made a concerted effort over the past several years to provide information through our green infrastructure website about funding options, ideas for green infrastructure, cost benefit analysis tools, asset management guidance for water and wastewater utilities, and much more. Uh, one notable resource for this audience is EPA's permitting and enforcement series that includes case studies and example language for including green infrastructure and permits and consent decrees. Great. We'll add those resources to our show notes as well. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dennis and David. These are really important issues and hearing from you both about your work is definitely going to be helpful to localities around the country. And thank you also to our wonderful listeners, as always. Well, until next time, this is Linda Bragan with the Environmental Law Institute closing out another episode of LGN's Local Environment, the Compliance Podcast. We hope you'll join us again for another podcast soon. Thank you for listening to today's Local Environment, the Compliance Podcast, a podcast brought to you by LGN, the Local Government Environmental Assistance Network. Visit us at lgene.net and on social media for user-friendly tips, funding resources, and other tools ensuring your community complies with federal environmental regulations. And please, take our latest survey while you're there. Together, we can advance healthy and sustainable communities for all.